Hello everyone, you're listening to Things of Interest. I'm Serena Chen. And I'm Sophia Prince. This episode, extremism. Extremism. I'm really excited about this episode because it's one of those things that, um, it feels really topical right now, but if you look throughout history, it's kind of been topical forever. Uh, our listeners might remember the recent kerfuffle that was Brexit, where Britain voted to leave the European Union. And they're still in the middle of a strange kind of limbo as we speak. Uh, or more currently, the flaming pile of poo that is the current state of the Republican Party in the United States. That's a sight to behold. <laughs> and oh, yeah. even like all around the world, if you look from Europe to the United States to some parts of Asia and even Australia and New Zealand, there does feel like there's been a rising sentiment of nationalism and anti-immigration and protections views. And this political extremism subject came up in an early episode where we were kind of going back and forth about is the world getting more extremist uh, or less extremist? Are our different viewpoints bringing us together or making relations even worse? Now, I really want to start this discussion with how we consume news. Uh, especially news nowadays where we have the internet uh, on top of like our usual television and radio and newspapers. And whether that makes us more empathetic to different worldviews, or less, or both. Because I think there are compelling arguments for both sides, both for the world becoming more moderate and both for the world becoming more extremist. And how, on one hand, the internet means that we hear more minority voices that we otherwise wouldn't have heard before. Um, the so-called democratization of media with the blogosphere in the late 90s, early 2000s, to now where we have Tumblr and Twitter and all these social networks. And yet on the flip side, we now get to control how we view our news and what feeds we consume. So does that mean that we're becoming more self-selecting? Does that mean that we're only picking out voices that we already agree with? What do you think about this, Sophia? What do you think about how we consume news nowadays and how that affects us? I mean, I think broadly, like, everyone, we sort of tend towards media that already aligns with a lot of our viewpoints, whether that's, like, the um, left-leaning ways of The Guardian or the right-leaning ways of The Daily Mail and The Daily Telegraph. Like, you find something that fits with you. You find something that makes you comfortable when it talks about whatever's happening in the world today. And that means we sort of like narrow our worldview to a large extent and increases our alienation from other groups to my mind. So like that feeds into this idea that there is this huge gulf and there is no way to effectively be a moderate in today's world, um, which I don't necessarily agree with. Like I think, I think if you feed into the view points and if you like allow yourself to become that isolated, like you don't ever really figure out how to talk to people with different viewpoints mm. and that's really really harmful so like if you see everyone who reads the daily mail and you're just like oh it's a brag everyone who reads it is an idiot like you're never going to be able to have a constructive conversation with someone who like genuinely believes a lot of what it tells them because it's meant to be a legitimate newspaper and an actual source of news whereas um there's a website somewhere that's like has the Daily Mail said it causes or prevents cancer? And you can look up, like, everything in the world and be like, does it cause or prevent? Mm. And there are things like, um, there are some things that both cause and prevent cancer, according to the Daily Mail. Um, and so I think, like, to a degree, like, we have a responsibility in the curation of our own news feeds to challenge ourselves. And this is probably something I'm going to harp on a lot uh, throughout this episode, that, like, challenging yourself and genuinely challenging your own viewpoint is really important to developing yourself as a person Absolutely. and also like understanding where other people come from. Absolutely. On the subject of different news sources, something that I've been kind of like humming and whoring on about is, is whether we should hold these different news sources to um, a standard of, I don't know whether we should fact check these news sources in a way to, to a standard that says that 
it's absolutely understandable if you report on news with a slant or bias because, you know, everyone's biased and everyone has slants and everyone believes in a different set of world ideals. And that's great. I mean, that means that we have a lot of different competing ideas that we're not siloed. But at the same time, I mean, especially looking at news sources such as Fox News or the fact that in the States, news comes under the heading of entertainment. So they're not legally bound to be um, right. <laughs> they're not legally oh, no, bound to, to say things that are correct. And so, I mean, on one hand, I really want there to be more vigorous fact-checking of all news sources. But at, on the other hand, like, does this cause a slippery slope in, in fact-checkers imposing their own world beliefs onto these news systems? I mean, like, I'm quite torn about this because speaking as a scientist, and especially as someone who studies genetics, mm and is totally fine with genetically modified organisms and, like, vaccinations and maybe not everything causes cancer. Mm. Like, dear God, yes, everything should be fact-checked. But also, like, I recognise that a lot of the ways that we produce facts are controlled by groups of people, like, particular groups of people still. Mm. And so I think a lot of the issues, like, a lot of issues would arise where you look at, like, who is in control of generating information and generating facts or doing the fact-checking, and then there would always be some kind of slant to those people. Uh, and that would concern me. Yeah. It's tricky because I I am endlessly frustrated by the fact that people are still debating whether climate change is happening. Um, I mean, like, the Australian government is not sure, apparently. So, like, I wouldn't hold out for that to be the thing that would be fixed by this. Um, no, but I, I, I do, I do believe that a lot of this sentiment and a lot of this like un, unsureness about actual scientifically proven facts is the fact that um, a we don't really there, there's no such thing as like fact checking the news. The news are supposed to be the fact checkers of everyone else, <laughs> <laughs> and and b there's this kind of unspoken rule or maybe spoken rule in journalism how you have to be fair whenever you present a story you have to present both sides which I think is a nice rule for most things um, but not for things that again are scientific facts that we absolutely know and we have evidence for so that's that's something that's been frustrating me for years and years and years now oh I mean like I think it's legitimate to an extent to like present both sides but to present both sides as if they have the same kind of weight is often like not good mm. so, like for example when you're talking about genetically modified organisms and you interview someone who is this massive hippie who thinks that anything we do to plants is bad despite the fact that like wheat was the original gmo for the same amount of time as you interview an actual scientist like that's really harmful that gives the same amount of weight to both of those viewpoints what you need to do is like as a journalist, like, to an extent, like, look at it with a critical eye. Be like, is it legit to give someone who believes in wind farm syndrome the same amount of time in, like, the mainstream media as an actual scientist? And the answer is probably not. Like, there have been, you know, massive peer-reviewed studies that say wind farm syndrome isn't a thing and please can we build more wind farms because renewable energy is important. Mm. Um and so to recognise that when generating the news, I think, is really important. And that's also just not done a lot currently. No. No, and it's the same kind of thing that happens if you look at the um, the American elections right now. You've got, you've got a lot of debate around about things like um, economics and immigration. Immigration is a big one, as it seems to be everywhere nowadays. And they'll feature an expert on economics and then they'll feature them – in opposition to someone who is clearly who who is a known white supremacist and putting those two things on like putting those two opinions on the same playing board kind of normalizes both of them yeah definitely so it i kind of i kind of get it it makes sense if 
for example, one were to mention white supremacists in the same in the same tone as you would mention fringe left wing people, um, like anti vax, I think is a left wing fringe kind of thing. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> that would make sense to put those two kind of political views on the same level as each other. Um, but putting an extremist view on the same level as a more well-known mainstream view means that you're actually, A, bringing that mainstream view down and questioning it, which I think is a good thing, but also, B, bring that extremist view up and normalizing it. So nowadays, when you look at American media, it really does feel like the the language of white sum- supremacy is normalized in a way, and I think that can be really dangerous. Yeah, definitely. And, like, to an extent... I understand it because a lot of the capital of people like white supremacists, people like um, the hardcore MRA who believe that, like, women have taken over the world already, which clearly we haven't, otherwise (laughs) I'd be in charge. Um, Like, that centers around things like conspiracies, like people controlling the media, like particularly with white supremacists, there's often this idea that a lot of the media is controlled by people of Jewish descent, and, like, that's terrible, and they're often very horrifically anti-Semitic about it Mm. and by giving them some time in the media that serves to like decrease the amount of sway those those kind of conspiracy theories can have almost but equally like there's a lot of harm to making them seem legitimate there's a lot of and like I don't think the kind of viewpoints we should be questioning are things like racism is bad and maybe everyone should have health care (laughs) <laughs> like the kind of viewpoints we should be questioning is like particularly like if you look at the United States for example is like should the United States continue to support Israel's foreign policy with the look at how, like how aggressive it has been in the past and whether that's likely to change mm, that's, that's a, a hard really question good discussion to have yeah it's a good discussion to have right yeah. and there's a lot of different viewpoints and like as awful as white supremacists are like, including them in that discussion means that they're not likely to be like, our oh, Jews control all the media, this is horrible, like, we should riot, mm. right? Yeah. But, like, it, that's tough though, right? Like, and I don't like saying that, <laughs> and I think that's awful. And I also think that while we live in a world where, like, we don't have a lot of people of other races being interviewed by the mainstream media, we also shouldn't have white supremacists be interviewed in that same way. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I absolutely agree. Like, It's just, yeah. I absolutely yeah. agree in that like, the hard questions are the important questions that we should be looking at right now. And I think a lot of people would agree with that as well. My concern is that the hard questions aren't the questions that the majority of people are thinking about. Well, I mean, like, look at Australia, right? Like the conversation we're consistently having like in a lot of media as a nation is why are we still doing offshore detention? Like, why is that a thing? We should not be doing that. And like, there are probably some pockets of people that believe in it and think it's a good thing. Unfortunately, a lot of those pockets of people appear to be in government. Mm. So I think like, that's not a tough question. That's not a tough discussion to have. And like to an extent we're having it in the media. The issue then is like the translation of like what people think and what the media is saying and like the control of a lot of the media by one dude in the case of Australia um, and translating that to governmental changes. Mm. Yeah, that's that's definitely the, the frustration at the moment is that because the mainstream media is talking about things like should immigration be a thing or <laughs> or are black people really suffering like when <laughs> oh, no. when when you give when you talk about these kinds of topics you kind of give them a legitimacy in in the fact that they should be debated and this is this is my worry right now is that I don't know whether it's the media influencing the people or the people influencing the media, probably a combination of both. But my worry is that the concerns of everyday people, of the majority of people, are not on these tough and important questions. They are on the questions that 
I mean, you and I feel like are already answered and already solved, but but that's not what most people are talking about. And I, I think this is, this is why I really wanted to talk about silos and political extremism, because in a very big way, I think you and I, as, I don't know, young 20s, somewhat left-wing, active in the science realm. Angry. As, <laughs> as who we are, I think we're very siloed in as well. And we talk to people who agree with us. And, and that's, that's cool. That's what everyone does. Um, but what I, what I really want to do is try and understand the majority and why they're talking about what they're talking about. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and I mean, like, my interest with the news and, like, with media and all of that will always sort of lie along science lines. And, like, I've always sort of made a point of trying to understand where people like anti-vaxxers, people who are against GMOs come from. Mm. And I had this um, moment, I was at a dinner last night, actually, and they were talking about someone they knew who was anti-vax, and they kept referring to them as stupid. And I was like, well, I mean... Then they're not. Yeah. Like they hold those views for a reason. Those reasons just aren't reasons you agree with. Like, do you know why they believe that? Have you ever asked why they don't believe in vaccination? And they're like, oh no, it's just like they're being it's ridiculous. They're stupid. It's like you're never going to change anyone's mind. <laughs> you're like, this is a person who like you're actively talking about how you're worried about when they have kids, right? Mm. And like you're never gonna change their mind by referring to them as stupid. Like, you have to understand where people come from and say, like, okay, this is our starting point. What are your concerns about vaccinations? And I will try and explain that to you. And, like, I recently saw the film Jabbed, which is fantastic. It's um, directed by a group from Melbourne, Gene Paul Productions, Mm -hmm. which kind of takes that line to it. Like, it takes the line, like, are vaccinations good or bad? Let's find out together. And, I mean, the end thesis is, like, they are so good. <laughs> they are just so incredibly good. Um, but by starting off without a pre-gone, like a foregone conclusion, by going to people, like they went to the head of the Royal Homeopathy College in London, who says vaccines are so good. Please vaccinate your children. <laughs> if homeopaths tell you not to vaccinate your children, they are wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> and like that was fantastic, but a hardcore left-wing scientist locked in their silo would have never gone to that person. No. No, I'm glad that that was made. Yeah. Uh, Just to, like, devil's advocate myself, uh, I know we've just been talking (laughs) about how how harmful it is to, like, have these discussions about, you know, whether climate change is real or, like, is vaccinations a thing or, or, like, is white supremacy bad? Like I know, I know having these these discussions in the mainstream media, uh, we've just talking about the negative effects on it. But now, you know, as we're talking about it, I'm a positive effect is that we are talking about things like race, which isn't a thing that's really happened in the past. It's always been done uh, like conversations about race and race relations has always been done kind of like on the fringe and it's a very touchy topic in the realm of the mainstream media so I guess a good thing is that we are talking about it more and I think this has been fueled by the internet and the democratization of media is that because we have these minority voices speaking up and being listened to then that's kind of like forcing the mainstream media to give attention to that and I think hearing these voices and hearing the backlash from them, like backlash is a normal thing that we should expect because we're, we're changing. We're listening to more minority voices and we're considering race relations more deeply. So, I mean, the backlash is frustrating and it it is endlessly breaking my heart that there are people out there who still believe that, I don't know, that black Americans don't suffer or that the wage gap isn't real. I mean, that that's endlessly frustrating. But at the same time, maybe the backlash is just a symptom of us as a society being more open towards discussing these social issues. Just to, like, devil's advocate myself. 
Maybe. But then, like, I think about kind of media coverage that happened in Ferguson and that is happening, like, a lot of black America happenings and how they tend to sort of paint everything as just being, like, the black people's fault. Like, that concerns me. Yeah. And, like, while a lot of my exposure to that has been through, like, non-mainstream media, as it would be for a lot of young people, like, the issue remains that a lot of old people get a lot of their news from newspapers Mm. or the TV news. And if that media is painting black people or indigenous people in Australia or Maori people in New Zealand as being, like, awful, dull-bludging, rioting, angry, like that's going to have a major effect on what the policymakers act like, what people who employ people act like, and what, like, the majority of people who vote act like. Absolutely. And so, like, while I recognise that, like, discussions about race are really important, like, I think the way we're having them right now is really shitty. Mm. I agree 100%. it's, (laughs) It's abysmal. And I guess the, like... The only silver lining to that is that we have things like the internet to call out media outlets. The other issue is uh, that, like, as much as there is quote-unquote debate going on in the media surrounding things like having human rights (laughs) and also maybe rapists should go to jail and, you know, stuff like that, like... And this is something I tell, like, high schoolers in debating a lot, man. Like, they don't listen to the other side. Mm. And, like, something I find that's been really key and, like, and I, I've really noticed different sides not listening to each other is the sort of discussion that's happened around trigger warnings. Oh, yeah. Is that, like, the side against trigger warning is like, oh, the youth of today can't take anything, <laughs> needs to be wrapped in cotton wool. And it's like, mate, on a movie you go, like, R16 sexual violence, right? Like, it's that, but for a university course. Like, what's wrong with you? And just, like, they're like ships passing in the night. Like, these are two sides that are just so entrenched in their views that they don't talk to each other at any point. Mm. And, like, I understand, like, trigger warnings make you really angry, and it's hard to have, like, a constructive and serious discussion when you're, like, no, I would like to not have a panic attack in the middle of my first year lecture, like, surrounded by, like, 2,000 people. Thank you. Like, that's tough to have that, like, quite jarring conversation with someone. But really, like, in order to have any kind of meaningful debate in the media or, like, in any other kind of way, you need to listen to the other side. And, like, it's the same thing, like, I just said with anti-vax people. You have to understand where they're coming from in order to say, okay... I understand where you're coming from, but here's where we differ, Mm. and this is why it's really important. Mm. And I guess this goes back to, like, our previous episode about emotions in that, I mean, a lot of these contentious topics do have a a lot of emotion around them, and they're often quite personal. So, So that doesn't help either when, I mean, when you rightly get emotional over something and someone else who disagrees with you sees that emotion as an invalidation of your your arguments, which is which is super annoying um, and super frustrating. And, like, yeah. there are different ways that intersectionality plays into it, like, particularly with the example of trigger warnings, like, people who are more likely to be affected by PTSD are women yeah. at that age, like, because that's often the age before men have generally come back from war and that's like a serious problem in America um, which really needs more addressing like they don't treat their veterans very well at all um, and it's often younger people and if you're talking about universities it like generally will be younger people who aren't educated yet and so like a lot of universities and like we saw this a little bit with the University of Chicago will turn around and kind of be like but your children you don't know anything <laughs> like what are you saying? Yeah. You're just kind of whining, like, oh, millennials. Um, I do I do think it's like a case of, it's a case about power more than anything. I mean, those are entrenched institutions. Um, and the, the act of the student body rising up and saying, hey, we demand, you know, a higher standard from our institution, that, that shakes you. Um, 
that shakes the institution. What I really like is um, reframing the name trigger warning to content warning when you're talking to people who, who are really against trigger warnings because everyone understands a content warning and that's essentially what a trigger warning is. It's just saying, hey, there's some stuff in here uh, that you may or may not react badly to or want to see or be comfortable with seeing and I'm just, it's, just a, it's just a friendly heads up. And reframing it, trigger warnings in that way, I feel like is a more approachable to the to the anti PC crowd. To an extent, yeah. But like, it does remind me of like when um, the general conversations surrounding global warming moved to more general conversations surrounding climate change, mm. so that that would be more accessible to people who were like, "Oh, it's not getting warmer. It rained the other day." <laughs> like, and that like, I think I'm not sure how I feel about a like weakening of language surrounding it i think with trigger warnings and content warnings it's like they're relatively interchangeable as long as you give me a heads up like i'm good um but when it comes to like potential other issues like i don't know how i feel about the weakening of language surrounding that Mm, in case it it weakens the actual in case it weakens like the way we respond to it Mm -hmm. like global warming, climate change, whatever you want to call it, is going to, like, wreck the world. Yeah. And I'm a little bit concerned that maybe moving from, like, global warming to climate change, something that sounds more natural, something that sounds like, you know, it would kind right. of happen anyway. Right. It's like, we, we're not as concerned about it. And, no, we, we should be. Mm. We should be very concerned about it. <laughs> That's a really good point. Yeah. So, so I guess... It- in what way can we reach a middle ground between empathizing and appealing to people who disagree with our worldviews while at the same time not weakening those worldviews to appeal to them? Yeah. Mm. Well, you know, that is the constant battle. Yeah. Here we are. Here we are. It's tricky. I think something the internet does as well is it helps you find other people that agree with you. Mm-hmm. And that can be really nice, like, existing as a woman in the world sucks, Mm. and to be like, ugh, I had this one experience, like, it was awful. And to have other women be like, yeah, this happens all the time, I'm so sorry, oh my god. Um, That's so, that's so powerful. Yeah, that's really good. But it also means you can go on to the, uh, what is it, r slash red pill? Oh god. Yeah, Yeah. and find lots of people that agree with and maybe encourage really toxic viewpoints of yours. And that's really, really harmful. And so, like, I've had wonderful um, experiences of being, like, jumped on by, like, a whole bunch of um, Gamergate types about, oh, that dude whose name escapes me. The Nobel Prize winner who, like, made a sexist joke. I don't know. <laughs> and then, like, didn't apologize that much. She was like, oh, I'm sorry if anyone was offended. And it's like, ugh. What an apology. Ugh, um, and I made some comment about it, and then I had, like, 20 guys just jump down my throat on Twitter. And yeah. it's like, no, no thanks. Yeah. I'm good. So the, cool. the really tricky thing about that situation is that, like, if you, if you look at these forums, um, which are really gross harboring grounds for the worst misogyny I've ever seen. But these are really lonely, really sad people. And so, I mean, to empathize with them, it, it's absolutely understandable that they would find something like a concept, a thing to blame for their current predicament and to just latch onto that. And in latching onto that kind of, dig themselves deeper and deeper into the hole of complete belief that it is feminists who are ruining their world and making them sad. And, and, and that's when it becomes tricky because it's like, okay, um, I want to help these guys out, but I really don't know how, I really don't know how to bring them out of that hole and how to get them to like, maybe just talk to like a, everyday woman without thinking that 
she is planning, plotting to destroy your life because she wants equal rights. Like, I guess my question is, and it's, it's an open question, is just how do we talk to people? How do we reach out of our silos to people who have completely different beliefs, but who are human like us? And how do we find like a middle ground in which where like we might agree on something? So to an extent, I'd talk about like people on R slash Red Pill quite a bit differently to other groups. And part of that is just like safety. Yeah. Because like while I would love to sit down and just have a nice chat with a dude and be like, hey, maybe you don't hate women. Like, realistically, that's super unsafe for me. Mm. Like, and I really wouldn't encourage women to take that step. No. And, like, um, I think we've sort of mentioned this before, like, this is the reason that allies are so important is because, like, it is actively unsafe for us to do this. Mm. Like, and so it's really the job of, like, essentially, like, male feminists to break into these silos and be like, hey, you're a dude, I'm a dude. Have you considered not hating women? Mm. Wouldn't that be nice? That's a fantastic point. Um, because in the Gamergate kerfuffle, <laughs> um, there, there was a lot of stuff lying around, a lot of articles. Um, and there were a few by Chris Clue who completely slammed the Gamergate people, like, shamelessly slammed them for their views and the the backlash that he got was at such a fraction of the backlash that i don't know some random woman who made one comment one time got yeah yeah and and he documented this and he showed everyone and and i think that's that's hard evidence for male feminists to say hey like you're not gonna get that much backlash and you absolutely can and should raise your voice because this is where you're most effective and this is where your power is. Um, something I've realised that we've kind of forgotten to do and maybe should is explain how what Gamergate was. Oh, yes. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> so Gamergate was a counterculture, let's put it nicely, counterculture movement that started, I want to say, maybe two years ago now, three, three years ago. And yeah. and it started with an article that um, Leanna Alexander wrote about gaming. Um, it, it was not a very offensive article. It was any other article. But it, a lot um, I'm going to... Yeah? Didn't it start sort of surrounding a review of Depression Quest? Oh, okay, yeah, so there's there's a lot of origin points, and these are, like, different groups of people who <laughs> have, like, the same kind of same kind of outrage, and then they came together and became Gamergate. Uh, but yes, okay. yeah, Depression Quest as well. Um, so Zoe Quinn made a game and, and got a good review. And so, like, part of my issue surrounding the backlash of Depression Quest, so Depression Quest is a browser game. Mm -hmm. um, I think you can also get it as an app. Like, it costs nothing to play, and it's actually a really good tool for explaining how depression works to people who don't experience it. Mm. Um, it is, like, mad triggering if you actually have depression. So, like, don't do not do that mm. if you have depression. But, like, show it to your family and friends if you do, because it is a really good way to communicate it. And, like, one of the reasons I just found, like, that section of Gamergate so incomprehensible is they were angry that, like, someone, Zoe Quinn, that maybe dated before or, like, knew had written a good review about this game that she was never going to make money from. Yeah. Like, I think something, like, I'm pretty sure, like, all proceeds from Depression Quest go towards charities. Yeah. And so these were people, like, yelling about a game and talking about, like, boycotting and shutting down a game that was meant to help people. Yeah. And I just, like, oh. Bullshit. Oh, absolutely. And you're so angry. <laughs> I absolutely agree. But at the same time, I can kind of see uh, where they're coming from. Just because I have a lot of friends who are deeply embedded in the gaming community. And I think it, the outrage of the depression quest started and it latched onto like a more 
constant building frustration amongst um, quote-unquote hardcore gamers who who were really pissed off that there were like all these new games coming out that weren't as hard or weren't as like time demanding or didn't have guns in it where you could like kill people and shoot people and you know you you do know the demographic that i'm talking about yeah so yeah i really do yeah (laughs) so like so we have a whole episode about video games planned so we're not going to go super into this right now but like this is a brief overview of gaming games so so i think that their kind of outrage over Depression Quest was latching on to that, like, constant that was already building up. And so because of that, they then, oh, they they dug into her personal life, essentially, and they talked about, like, I think it was an ex-boyfriend of hers who wrote this massive post about how she, and this is all, by the way, like, proven to be untrue, but about how she would, like, sleep around with um, gaming journalists to get her games, like, a better score and stuff. Again, all proven untrue. But this latched on in the gaming community, and it became this massive snowball of outrage uh, and this massive snowball of anti-PC culture and gaming. And it was labeled, quote-unquote, ethics in gaming journalism. Um, which it was not about at all. Yeah, it's it's not about feminism. It's about <laughs> ethics and gaming journalism, which has since become like a little bit about um, yeah. a little bit of a meme, where like you can just be like, oh, it's actually about like ethics and video <laughs> game journalism. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was pretty awful, and like a lot of the anger surrounding like the general shift in gaming culture was leveled at women. Um, leveled at people of color, leveled at like these people if they were game developers, and so we've both read uh, Game Changers, I believe. Have you read it? I've started reading it. And like, there's a section that talks about the fact that like Zoe Quinn, like she can't have pictures of her posted online when she's still in that place. Like she has to know that she is safe and away from that place because like she's been docs like i watched code um on debunking the gender gap and a woman who was basically like harassed out of her office had people calling where she used to live and telling her that they were going to kill her and it's like cool great love it oh being a woman Mm. am i right um and so like it just made a lot of video games discourse this really really toxic Mm. space but I think out of that, to an extent, a lot of places kind of stood up and been like, no, 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 we're not standing for that. And so, like, one of the ones I'm really aware of and, like, my favorite place to go for, like, game chats is Polygon. Yes. Um, which yes. employs a lot of women. And, like, I think I might have mentioned before or possibly in show notes or something that I engage in a lot of McElroy products. McElroy products. Um, and so the... There are three brothers that make a lot of podcasts and two of them work in video games, two of them work for Polygon, and they will just be like, um, yes, women are important, feminism is important, why are we still, like, mm. don't don't be a dick, like, come on, man. Um, <clears throat> and I think that attitude and making that attitude a lot mainstream has been really positive for a lot of people who belong to minority groups that are in gaming. Mm. Like, and sort of by the same token, I find it slightly mystifying and this is, like, more of a broader problem that I have, that, like, people that belong to minority groups, like, a lot more of them don't work and succeed in computer science and gaming and all of that because, realistically, like, it's the kind of job that is so flexible. Like, if you're wheelchair-bound, you could be really good at coding. If you are a mother with two kids who needs to, like, balance her time, you could be really good at coding. But for some reason, like, gaming and coding remains, like, the remit of voice. <laughs> and it's just, it's not. It's not it's, true anymore. Yeah, it's a cultural thing. It's 100% a cultural thing. There was um, there was a, a great study that came out recently about the gender wage gap, and it showed how, um, how first of all, the gender wage gap exists. <laughs> Second of all, um, we can close that wage gap a lot by making hours flexible because a lot of the times it's women who are expected to do a lot of the, the childcare, a lot of the domestic care, when in 
domestic emergency happens of some kind, it's women who are expected to pick that up. So jobs with flexible hours are really good for closing that gender wage gap. It's, I mean, it's not equal yet, but it does a, it does a significant job. So when you look at very flexible job like programming or just working in tech in general that's very time flexible and location flexible it is perfect for a diverse workforce i mean it's perfect for closing that wage gap but yet you still see this massive gap between women and men and like white and people of color because it's 100% the toxic culture around tech and gaming and computer science and it's this very like programmer dude culture of there's only one way to be a gamer or there's only one way to be a programmer and that's it's something uh it's something i could go on for hours about the the leaky pipeline that is tech but i'll stop myself there (laughs) more episode plans more episodes future episodes (laughs) Um, so yeah, that is uh, a brief-ish history of Gamergate and sort of like why when we talk about that, we're referring to a particular type of, look, and I don't even really want to call them men's rights activists. Mm. They're like women's lack of rights activists. Oh my God. Because like, as we sort of discussed before, like feminism is about the equality of all sexes and all genders. Yeah. And it's not just, like, women should be better at stuff, but, like, that would solve a lot of our problems. It's also, like, we want men to be able to have emotions. We want men to feel like they can, you know, take time off to care for their kids. We want men to have equal parental yeah. leave to women, which Australia doesn't, and I think it's yeah. bullshit. Like, Do you remember oh. first hearing about men's rights activists? Because I remember first hearing the words men's rights activists. I heard it and I was like, yeah. okay, cool. Like, that's just like a different Absolutely. type of thing. Absolutely. Like, I heard right? it and I got so excited. It's not. I was like, this is fantastic. You know, like, men's rights are not talked about because men's feelings and men's general, like, any topic about men that isn't about, like, their career or their job or, like, sports, it's not talked about. And I was so happy that, you know, oh, as like men of color, men yeah, of abilities, men—they all kind of need this protection. Yeah, <laughs> so I was I was so excited, and I and I like went on to this men's rights activism forum, and I was like, yeah, you know, I'm I'm so glad, and I started reading, and then I was like, oh, oh my god, <laughs> this is the complete opposite oh, no. of what I expected. Like there was no talk about actual men's issues, and all the talk was about how feminists were ruining the world. Yeah, well... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, if you're a dude and you're interested in, like, stuff about men's rights, my very strong advice to you is to never, ever call yourself a men's <laughs> rights activist because you'll get tarred with a very poisonous mm-hmm. brush. And, like, that's sort of the one silo that I wouldn't recommend trying to reach out to as, like, a woman, as, like, a feminist, because it would actively put you mm-hmm. in danger, particularly if you're a member of the tech or the gaming community. Like, that's just straight-up dangerous. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to, like, other types of silos, like, again, like, I think in a lot of situations, allies are super important when you're talking about things about race, when you're talking about things like being a member of the LGBTIQ community. Um, like, that's a key mm-hmm. part of it. And we sort of mentioned this in the emotions episode, but for some reason, apparently, when you're not, like, innately affected by a discrimination, like, people take what you say more seriously, Mm. and it's just like, oh, right, (laughs) whatever. And I mean, like, to an extent, that's because you don't come across as being self-serving if you're a man talking Mm. about women's rights, if you're a white person talking Mm. about race. Like, you're clearly not doing this for your own personal Mm. gain. So, like, you're taken a little bit more seriously. Um, But when it comes to reaching out to silos on the political spectrum or the belief in science spectrum, like we've said a lot of times this episode, like, understanding where people are coming from is the first step to being able to have a good conversation with them and to be like, look, this is what you believe. This is where I differ. This is why I differ. Do you sort of have any rejoinder to that? I guess what we've been hinting at all episode is that on 
on any issue there is a spectrum, right? And we as people sit along the spectrum wherever we are. And if we are to reach too far to another end, too far along the spectrum, things can get dangerous. So the first thing to make clear is to like always keep your own safety in mind and if it's going to be too dangerous to to reach out to an extremely siloed community, you know, you that's not your responsibility and I mean, especially if you belong to a minority group, that's not your responsibility and you don't have to do that. At the same time, because we sit along the spectrum, it is easy to reach out to our neighbours. So perhaps I have a friend who we agree with on some issues and we disagree with on some other issues. And I don't know, finding, finding people who there is mutual respect between the two, I think is a really good place to start because then when you're having a conversation about a topic that's rather contentious or a topic that you both disagree on uh, quite passionately, you have that mutual respect. So you're coming to the conversation from a place of good faith. Um, And this I think is really important to mention because I've had a lot of conversations, especially over the internet with people whom I disagreed with, but people who did not come to the conversation in good faith. And I think this calls back to what you were talking about earlier with the the debating groups, is what happens when you don't come to a conversation with the, the purpose of learning something new, the purpose of expanding your horizons. If you come to the conversation with the only purpose of I am right and I want to win, then you just don't listen to the other party. And the other party isn't going to listen to you. So you're essentially talking in parallel instead of talking with each other. You're talking past each other. And that's not going to help anyone. And if anything, that's going to mean that both of you are going to come out of the conversation more divided and more frustrated than you were before. So I think that's a key thing to remember if you're starting these conversations is to... Is to start from a common ground and start from a place of mutual respect and to start from a place where I recognize that you're a human being and you recognize that I'm a human being and now we can start disagreeing. And those are some of the best conversations that I've had in my life is when I've been completely challenged. My entire world ideology has been shaken and I came out of it a, a fuller person because I, I considered a wider spectrum of what I had before and I think that's really important yeah no I totally agree with that I think also like if you're going into a conversation and you have no intention of being convinced of something don't give that away (laughs) like seriously just be like no I'm willing to like have this conversation you could definitely like convince me of something that's the thing that could occur like don't be like you're never going to convince me I know the true truth. <laughs> like, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, it's like how to shut down a conversation 101. Just yeah. don't budge. That's that's how you shut down conversations. Um, to Before we end this episode, I really wanted to brush quickly uh, on the, um, the X or bust philosophy. Uh, and to explain this, I think a, a good analogy, a good example is the, the Bernie or bust camp. of the the democratic side of the American election. And the idea is that, you know, they have have a very strong political ideology, a lot of which that I agree with. Um, But the belief is so strong that they would rather do something like vote for Donald Trump than Hillary Clinton just to air out their frustration with those who are in power. And I think this is what we saw as a part of Brexit as well, is that a a good significant number of votes to leave the European Union were from people who didn't actually want to leave the European Union. They didn't actually agree with that move, but they voted that anyway as a protest vote to say, hey, I am angry about the current situation of things. So... What are your thoughts on this X or bust philosophy? Like, I think it's often just ridiculous. Yeah. 
Like, and it's often a philosophy that's taken by people that are not at any risk of being harmed by their choices. Mm. So, like, the Bernie or Bust philosophy, like, all the Bernie bros can feel free to, like, vote for Trump because they're often white dudes whose family have been in America for long enough to mm. be, like, totally settled there and at no risk of being deported. And, like... Yeah. It's just, like, you're kind of not really taking responsibility for your actions when you get so into something. You're like, well, either I'll get what I want or I'll throw a temper tantrum. Yeah. <laughs> I think I saw a tweet somewhere that was, like, um, people who are saying Bernie or Bust is kind of like they didn't get the Sunday they want, so now they're going to drink snake poison. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I've also heard the argument said a lot that that um, if one were to do a protest vote, like vote for Brexit or vote for Donald Trump, then then suddenly the world will see how right they were and the world will see how like terrible it is that either like Britain is leaving the European Union, or, or um, they have Donald Trump as president, and that's and then you know somehow the world will recorrect itself, and in four years we'll vote for a like way socialist president. Yeah, and the problem I have with that argument is that when you look at history, that's just not what happens. Like when when there is a far left v far right kind of election, um, and I think you saw this in the election between Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. I think this was in like the late 70s, early 80s. It was a time, much like today, where the economy was really bad and and um, interest rates were really high and people were just mad in general with the government. Um, there were a lot of protest votes for the far right with the same kind of argument, like, oh, okay, everyone will see how shitty this is and then everyone in four years everything will be fine. But that's not what happened. And what happens is that when you... When you use your vote to do a protest vote, and this is a frustrating thing, like in all systems of government, is that there's no really good way to protest. So when you actually do cast a protest vote, what will happen is that, you know, this more evil evil gets voted into power, and then suddenly the entire spectrum of your country's politics shifts, and it shifts away from you. And instead of, instead of, what they hoped to do was to shock the system into doing what they wanted. They've actually shifted the entire system away from their political ideology. <laughs> and so, as Sarah Silverman said in the Democratic National Convention, to the burning or bus people, you're being ridiculous. And just like, while I recognise in America it's really tough because you only have two parties, mm. I like, that has a lot of issues associated with it, like my great-grandfather in an election in New Zealand where they only had Labour and National still once did a write-in vote where he said tried both and both found wanting, Mm. which is, yep, that's my family. Um, (laughs) But, like, in Australia and New Zealand, like, you have, like, so many parties to choose from. Just find one that suits you and roll with it. And equally, like, Bernie had an effect on the American election. Like, he pulled Absolutely. Hillary to the left because she realised that there was something that people wanted that was further to the left than where she was standing. Mm. And that's really good. Yeah. Like, and to then be like, oh, Bernie didn't get it, I'm going to vote for Trump. It's like, what is, what is wrong with you? Like, you're just, you're throwing a tantrum, except instead of just, like, lying on the floor and crying, <laughs> you're firebombing the White House. Like, don't do that. You're burning down someone else's house. Like, other people live in this house. <laughs> Please don't burn down the house. We've had eight glorious years of Barack Obama. And, like, certainly he's made some complicated political decisions. Mm. Certainly some things have occurred that, like, I don't necessarily agree with. Yeah. But, like, Sanchez would have Mitt Romney. Like, yeah. he's been great. Like, just, just chill. Everyone needs to chill. <laughs> Obama made, like, a really – well, Obama makes a lot of good speeches, but Obama did a really good speech um, a couple of months ago at the Howard commencement, and a big part of that speech was about how politics moves slowly. And if you want to affect change, you have to be okay with the fact that that change is going to come, but it's going to come slowly. And – and he said something that really resonated with me was that it doesn't matter how right you are. Like, that just doesn't matter. What matters is 
what change you can affect and what and how you can slowly bring the system to a place where it is more right. And he said how ideological purity is narcissistic. And that kind of made me stop because I am someone who, I don't know, like I have ideologies and I, I believe that the world should run in you know, a certain way as everyone does. And I believe that, you know, people, you know, human rights and, oh, this glorious utopia where everyone has basic human rights. <laughs> and so a, a lot of the times when there are compromising moves performed by governments or politicians, that really irks me. Um, that really irks me because it's not the, it's not what I see as the optimal thing that they could do, as the best thing that they could do. It's, it's a compromise. And what that Barack Obama speech really made me realize is that the place that I came from was a place, was a very selfish place because it feels good to be ideologically pure. It feels good to have, you know, principles that I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to give up. That feels great. But at the same time, having those principles and not giving up on them, not even budging slightly to get um, the lesser of two evils or to get like a slightly better outcome is selfish. And that kind of just made me stop and think about how I approach politics and how I approach these issues. And it made me understand the, the argument for compromise a lot more than, than I did before. I understand the argument for compromise quite a bit. However, I also live in Australia and nothing makes you feel better about like the rest of the world's politics than living in Australia, where an entire <laughs> election was fought over which part, which major political party could better keep refugees in the ocean. That's disgusting. Yep. <laughs> so it's like, I understand compromise, but also, like, you're talking about spending, like, $16 million dollars on asking every single person in Australia whether they think same-sex, like, whether marriage equality should exist. Mm. Well, that's, when that's exactly the point, is that compromise A free vote would it, make sense. Yeah, like, it, the, the idea of compromise is really gross, right? Because, I mean, in our minds, it's very clear. It, there, there is no argument for basically doing nothing and letting people die. Letting people die. It's just not okay. And so to have to compromise on these issues is, is unthinkable, right? Like it's, it's just so clearly wrong, which is why that speech really challenged me. It, it, really, it really made me think. I'm still very much like compromise in other countries. Okay. Mm-hmm. In Australia, very bad at it. <laughs> because like the compromise of offshore processing is, actually processing some of the refugees and letting them come to Australia. Whereas, like, the compromise of the plebiscite is having a free vote in Parliament. We elected you for that reason. Mm. Like, that's what compromise looks like. Mm. But no compromise is really happening. And it's just, like, super frustrating to see, like, a lot of protests surrounding offshore processing like there's a huge sit-in at a hospital in brisbane Mm. where a baby had been flown there for emergency medical care and then they were like okay we're taking her back to nauru now wow and it's probably quite a different like discussion to have about like the political system and whether like politicians and governments actually need to listen to the people electing them but (laughs) it seems like there's a lot of vibe in australia that maybe we think offshore processing is bad Maybe we think, like, people shouldn't be only given Panadol for cesarean sections. Like, maybe we think that if people, like, set themselves on fire outside the Parliament House in Canberra, there's probably, like, a legitimate reason to take them off offshore processing centres. Like, and no compromises occurring surrounding that. And I just, I don't even know how to start having that conversation. It's really difficult. It's it's exactly how I feel about the Black Lives Matter movement and... It's, it's one of those things where it's like, this is so, so obviously a problem. And there's, it's like you get target confusion, right? Like, 
someone who you're disagreeing with say so many things that are so wrong. You're just like, I, I don't know where to start with. I don't know how to start this conversation. I don't know how to even start coming to a middle ground here. And it's hard. It's, it's very hard. On that high note. Positive note. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, thanks for listening to Things of Interest and this episode on extremism. You can find us on Twitter at Casting Interest. You can find us online at thingsofinterest.co. And we even have a Facebook page that one day may be populated. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with a friend. We really appreciate all of um, the feedback that we've gotten. We really appreciate your thoughts. And we really appreciate you sharing our podcast with your friend. And if you have time, give us some stars on iTunes, leave a review, and let us know what you want to hear. I've been Sophia Friends and will continue to be Sophia Friends. And I'm Serena Chen. Thanks so much for listening. You're the best. Bye. See ya.